guys ready up there? Hello and welcome to the Women in Film and Television Ireland podcast. My name is Hannah Quinn and I work as a director. I'm also a board member of WFT. In October 2017, WFT held a special masterclass allowing our members to gain a greater insight into the craft of editing from multi-award winning editor Una Nicanila. Her impressive credits include the film Belfast and Netflix series The Crown. In this very special podcast from the WFT archives, we learn all about what makes a great edit. It's a great pleasure for me to be here for for two reasons. Uh, One is editing is actually probably, along with maybe casting my favourite part of the process of, of, of directing, it amazes me every single time I sit in an edit suite that it reveals the story, new aspects of the story reveal itself, just when you think you know everything about the story. And the relationship with the um, editor is quite extraordinary. Uh, it's, um, it's like you have this, uh, as, as a director, this uh, series of monogamous relationships and um, you kind of sleep with your DOP, I mean metaphorically. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a kind of, it starts with your designer, your production designer, and then it moves on to your DOP, then they fall out with each other because they get really jealous that now you like <laughs> him or her more than... And then the, I remember working with the DOP who described uh, the relationship as terrible. My job is you give me a gift of an idea or a sequence or the, <coughs> the story, and then my job is to give it back to you with a, a big bow um, on it. And... Uh, and then you just drop all those lovers and it becomes intense with the editor. who is like your psychologist here. You spend the first week going, oh, if you only knew if we had more time. And the editor just sits there and goes, and says, do you want to go out and get a coffee and just, uh, and just come back? And um, so it really is an incredibly intense time. And a testament to that is um, I sat in an edit suite with Una Nicanila in 2009. Um, on a drama called The Silence, which was about a young girl who witnessed a, um, a young deaf girl who witnesses a murder. It was a character-driven um, psychological thriller. And I'd heard of Una. I had seen White Girl, one of her pieces, and I was blown away by it. And um, uh, I was working with two... I needed two editors at the time, and um, uh, I worked with, with Una, and we spent... Um, many hours working and talking, lots of talking, <laughs> because talking is such an important part of the, the process as well. And I, I think a testament to the work she did was, one, she, um, um, I can uh, thank her in no small way for the fact that I won an IFTA for that, so thank you very much. <laughs> I came across as brilliant because upon on the, shoulder of, uh, on the shoulder of giants. But secondly, we became and have remained uh, great friends. And I think that's another really special part of, um, of this, um, uh, you know, the, the alchemy and the mystery and the magic and the privilege of getting to tell stories, just um, meeting people along the way. So and I consider Una somebody I deeply respect as a colleague and deeply like as, um, as a friend. So oh, it's a great you. privilege. So, um, so um, importantly, um, I just am going to do a little bit of what one's mother might do. Um, to start you can get her off <laughs> and because I think it's really important especially I don't know I feel it as Irish people especially because so much of our work is, is abroad but um, she is going to get a chance to speak I promise um, <laughs> but um, uh, Una Hale's from Dublin and went to secondary school in Scully Sagone, and that's in the still organ dual carriageway I think that's an important thing because she um, she got her education through English and Irish which I think plays oh, through Irish True Irish, yeah, and I think that does play an, an interesting role in, in her thinking and approach and and um, 
visual thinking and sometimes how to tell a story not using language. Um, I know when I worked in Ekueku in Orchie Scullyscon was such a such a, a, a fertile school for us to draw on people and then went from there to DIT where she did a four-year um, uh, film and media course and then from there on to Beaconsfield where you um, uh, uh, focused in on editing um, and then um, ha worked in feature documentaries, uh, shorts, feature documentaries, got her break into drama at such a high level, but having worked with um, an Eastern European Wojciech, a, a director she'd worked with in film school and was an editor who really hadn't, you know, wasn't known for any other work, which is un unusual in the British system because very often, and in the Irish system, they're looking to see that you've done it before and you get pigeonholed very, easier, uh, very easily. And um, she edited White Girl, which um, uh, went on to um, be uh, BAFTA nominated. Uh, from there on to, she's three BAFTA nominations, which is obviously a crime, there isn't a win yet, but I feel <laughs> there's a win coming up. <laughs> and uh, importantly, she's had four IFTA nominations and one of them a win, so we do recognise the brilliance of her own for a documentary that uh, she edited, and a lot more than edited, that featured, um, that featured her dad. Um, so, Una, welcome. Thank After you all very that. much. <laughs> That's a lovely interview. Uh, <laughs> Um, Una, I'd like to start, we, we will go on to the clips, yeah. um, but to talk to you about process. And the first question about your, uh, the process is um, how do you approach your choice of script? What informs the story you want to work out? Because at this point you obviously get sent lots of, yeah, different lots scripts. of scripts. Um, from we, first of all, I have to say thank you for coming out because the weather was so horrific. I really appreciate it. I actually thought there might be nobody here <laughs> except for my Hence wonderful team. <laughs> <laughs> and because this is women in film, I couldn't do anything I do without that little team over there because uh, it's my mother-in-law, Sandra, my mom, Joyce, and our friend Teresa, and they have been invaluable help to help me because I'm moving between this country and London and commuting all the time with a young family and we couldn't do anything without my husband and those brilliant women, so thank you. <laughs> um, so what informs my decision? I think I, I was brought up in a family that really revered storytelling and singing and recitation. So if anyone ever has been to my parents' parties, you would have to force out a, a poem or something. You'd have to remember something. So I, I remember those songs. I remember those poems. I, I remember both my grandmothers telling stories. And their songs were full of, like, after the ball was over, was infused with such pathos as a child. I'll never forget that song. So for me, whenever I read a script, I'm interested in finding the story of the person or what, what, what is the psychological or emotional draw for me to care about this person. Because mm. I find that when I was uh, in school, I read Philadelphia, Here I Come, who most of you probably read. Mm. And that was the first time that I had this sense of the private self and the public self being displayed in theatre. And in film, it, it enables you to do that much more because you can show th what the world can see and then through editing and through the craft of directing some geography, you can actually give the audience a glimpse of what lies behind the veneer of the truth. And that's what I like. So any film I read, if it's a thriller or it's a comedy, I actually do agree with you. I would say that if there were producers or exec producers in the room, don't pigeonhole anyone because once you can actually tell a story through documentary, through animation, through drama, you can do comedy, you know, you can do thrillers, you can do anything because once you follow the heart of the, the character and reveal what's, what's important to them, the audience will feel it. 
Um, it's interesting there at Philadelphia, here I come, public yeah. garden, private garden. Yeah. That's because that's a wonderful illustration of subtext, really, yeah. isn't it? Exactly. And um, is subtext, uh, I, I worked with a, an actor rec recently and he looked at the cut and he went, oh gosh, Dervin, did you not like my performance? And I said, I absolutely loved you. You're the hero of this. We actually shot some extra scenes to put you in the opening scene because it's now become, <coughs> you know, about your character. And he went, but anytime I'm talking, you're, you're not on me. You don't, <laughs> you don't see my face. And I said, ah, oh. I said, that's called emotional cutting, not action yeah, cutting. Yeah. That's what's interesting is not what somebody is saying, but what Correct. somebody is thinking, because people rarely say what they, what they think. So um, again, just the process of, you know, was that instinctive or learning that? Because I think that's, and I've worked with lots of showrunners who yeah. want to see their words in close I know being that, spoken yeah. by the actors. And actor. a lot of editors do too, that yeah. sometimes you see in their first cut, a young up and coming editor might just, every time someone's yeah. talking, they're actually in sync and, and actually the words that they're saying are having a terrible impact mm. on the other character mm. and we should be watching the person reacting as those words are hitting them. So I would, yeah, I would definitely urge all editors in the room, Martha, just wait. <laughs> uh, to uh, explore those ways of using film to tell the story and ways of using sound and music that can reveal aspects of the character, push the story forward. And, and one of the tutors at film school, he had a phrase called Max, M-A-C-S, which was motive is revealed through the action of the character that pushes the story forward. So he sort of said that's a good little thing for us to just remember. M-A-C-S. So motive. always remember motive. Motive. motive is revealed through the action of the character that pushes the story forward. Okay. Just so you can try and find what the motive is. So it's yeah. not just the action is revealing itself mm. before your eyes. Mm. You actually try and find what's behind the action and what's the motivation for the actions of that character. Okay. And just continuing on the, on the macro there, yeah. I kind of, um, uh, kind of slipped off there into subtext. But other things that inform your choice and like does uh, working with a director, a director that um, is experienced, <coughs> isn't experienced, a director that you've uh, worked with before, um, uh, that <coughs> choice and also because you do live here yeah. and a lot of the work is in Britain because yeah. sadly our industry isn't, um, you know, there isn't enough Big going enough, on yeah. here. Um, uh, so I like to say from um, Soho to Shomra because she has <laughs> built a Shomra. Uh, she has a little Soho at the back of her garden, yeah. and I know you're at eleven now that you can negotiate um, um, with to your assemble producers. from home. O only yes. during the shoot. So during the shoot, I'm able to work from home. Yeah. And that started on the missing because my director Tom Shankland was going to shoot in Belgium, and they had the editor for seventeen weeks in London, and I just sent him an email because I had a very small baby and said, "Can I assemble from home?" And he just said, no problem. If you come for three weeks to Belgium, then do the rest from Dublin. And with modern technology, you can upload and download the media. So there's no reason for an editor to be stuck in a cutting room in a city if their director is not present. But when it comes to fine cutting, I invariably have to go to where the director is. Mm. But that's okay. That's sort of manageable. That's and so again, just that experience of when you're working with yes, somebody new, as opposed exactly. to as one's career develops, we tend to you know we've developed some some directors like to work with people that they've worked with before because there's a shorthand and yeah. others specifically actually want to work with new people that push them and have that yeah, and yeah. Have that new experience so now so i i love working so i love to work with you i love oh, working you. with it's true <laughs> <laughs> and she's so been busy ever since <laughs> no i but i do there's people who you just bond with and that you actually as you mm -hmm. said create that shorthand you might have a few days at the very beginning trying to find your feet mm -hmm. and then you 
actually just enjoy the experience together. And I think it's important though as well for directors, even maybe more than editors, it's important for directors to work with other editors and then come back to you mm. as well and for you to have worked because then I think you, you get more rich from more experience yeah. and seeing yeah. what other people can do and knowing how far you can push the boundaries. But if I got a script and the script was something that I just loved and was an inexperienced director, that would not put me off. Mm. But if I got a script that was maybe had some challenges and I knew the director and I knew it was going to be in very safe hands, that could give me a little push yes, yeah. of confidence yes, that okay. they will actually deal with it. And if it was a bad script and an inexperienced director, you'd be a bit concerned. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Until it's too late. Yeah. 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 Because, yeah. Um, and because can I say, as an editor, out of respect for all the writers in the room, as an editor, if, the, if there's problems in the script, they will exist throughout the shoot and in the cutting room. Yeah. So they come home to bear. So if you can't, if you go into a production with the script that the director and even the writer knows is not ready, if there was any way you know, to try and fix it before you start shooting, because otherwise we have to fix it. It is actually phenomenal how the problem never goes away. It never goes away. It? Yeah. And I've learned that before with a script that we thought, uh, another director I worked with, and we were so sure she could probably fix it in the yeah. shoot. It was a, yeah. her first big feature film. And actually, it just yeah. nearly killed us trying to fix it. it <laughs> and we just regretted yeah. another six weeks writing, and they could have done more. It's also, I mean, worked with a producer who um, once said you can't grade emotion. You know, it doesn't mm. matter how much money you throw at it in post or it, the lighting or the, 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 the issue doesn't go it away. It doesn't go away, yeah. And, uh, you, you might find solutions around it, but what you're doing is rather than starting from a springboard of here, you're actually trying to get up to there and yeah. with a great script in a good position you start at a higher level so the springboard is going to be greater. So to what degree are you honest at that first meeting? I'm very honest at the first meeting. Yeah, I have to be very honest at the first meeting because it, as an editor, when you're in the cutting room with the director, you have to tell them the truth and you mm -hmm. have to really do the best to do it. So say, for example, with three girls, which we're going to show the clip, and um, the scripts were absolutely beautiful. But when I read the scripts, I loved the first script completely, which was told through the eyes of the girl, Holly. But in episode two and three, in script form, episode two became about the police procedural and episode three became about the court case. So when I read the three scripts, I was just a little concerned that the subjective point of view of the girls was dropped and that the two final scripts, the girls weren't very present. So when I went for the meeting with Philippa, and I'd never worked with Philippa Lothorpe before, and I met herself and Simon Lewis, the producer, and I said it to them in the meeting that that was one of my concerns. And Philippa was sort of saying they, they were aware and, and that she was actually going to try and infuse more. And Nicole Taylor, the writer, she was also aware. And, and they were still writing because, of course, they meet me weeks before they're going to shoot. Mm -hmm. So they had time to do it. So I think what managed to get me the job, in fact, is the fact that I was honest and I put my finger on something that was their concern and they were actively trying to fix it. Mm -hmm. Whereas maybe other people came in and just loved the script and didn't... Mm. point that out mm. then I got the job off the next day. Again just to reinforce um, sometimes what you say for for you know people who aren't um, editors in the room but certainly as a director and, and, and meeting people and in British work you tend to you know you constantly have to pitch as a director you're yeah, pitching yeah. as editors, DOPs um, the importance and this is say something I've noticed has been a difference um, here in, 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 in Ireland sometimes because the pool is smaller you have to pitch and how important it is to give your point of view. People mm -hmm. are looking for points of view. They're not looking for you to come in and just say great. Just to, to, yeah, yeah. to brown nose. And mm -hmm. um, it is, 
um, a director is kind of waiting to hear how somebody has engaged with the script because everybody knows there are problems. Yeah, yeah. Um, and sometimes they're glossed over and sometimes in the politics of a room it's really helpful for a director to hear an editor say something that the producer is Yes, so yeah, Simon was present. Yeah, yeah it's, so it's very interesting yeah. that um, that, that process as well and say I would certainly use all of those meets um, with with different people to get because they can reinforce something because there's so much politics at, at play in in in, in prep and yeah. egos to be stroked or looked after or people to kind of come to be confronted with what are with what are the weaknesses and 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 uh, people are very sensitive yeah. obviously to the to the writer and say for me can I just say on like a personal level I have to really love this film because our project this TV show because I, I know it does take me away from Dublin mm -hmm. for periods of six to 12 weeks at a time. Mm -hmm. So then you have to make sure, like I have to make sure, because I've mm -hmm. done loads of things, which I'm sure all of us have done through my 20s, where I worked for years on brilliant passion projects that didn't really pay mm -hmm. the mortgage or anything like that. I didn't even have a mortgage at the time. But you spent years doing things like that, and now I, I really try and find something that I know that it's really great mm -hmm. to warrant the sacrifice of actually yeah. going away to do yeah. it. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's an interesting thing we might talk about later about career management. Mm. And um, but we did uh, yeah, reference we Three yeah. Girls, um, which I don't know. Has anybody seen Three Girls? It was on BBC. Yeah. Oh, a couple. Of, yeah. yeah, I hadn't seen it, and um, uh, Una sent it to me to um, just watch, and I started to watch it at eleven o'clock in mm. went to bed one night, and then at quarter past two, I. Um, wrote this <laughs> passionate email going oh my god I'm traumatized this is wonderful <laughs> so if you do get the, it's a really really it's how many have seen it did you just about seven or eight people so, okay and do you know the storyline just if you know, just click and can't yeah just give us the context. context well actually do what I did for the clip I decided to do it's a little bit long um, but it's about 10 minutes 9 minutes 50 seconds something but I've done I've shown you the pre-title and then it goes to black and then it's going to go to a little scene with the girls, and then it goes to black. So yeah. I've picked three sections of the first episode to give you the taste of the pre-title, then about 10 minutes in is the girls, where it goes, dips to black, and then it dips to black again for the final scene. Yeah. Uh, well, it's not the final scene of the episode, but the final scene of the clip. So this story was about, uh, just to give tribute though, to Sue Hogg, Simon Lewis, and Philippa and Nicole Taylor, they, they wanted to take the story of the Rochdale abuse scandal that happened in Great Britain where young white girls, predominantly all white girls actually, were um, groomed for sex and abused by predominantly uh, Pakistani origin British men. And although in the film we went to great lengths to try and say normal sexual assaults or rapes are, are in Great Britain are actually done by a lone white mm -hmm. man. So we have to be very careful with the politics of this because the truth is a lone white man is more likely statistically to be the rapist. but in instances of on-street grooming where there were groups of men it happens to have been this community of Pakistani origin British men and not all of Pakistani just a few a cluster mm -hmm. so this so this is us trying to tell the story of Holly Amber and um, Ruby right okay. so we just killed the oh sorry I should say to you the men befriended the girls in kebab shops and basically gave them food first and then drink and alcohol and then and I think important to say this is uh, true. This is based on a tr well, this is a, is a true, true story, story, and the real girls collaborated with us in the making of the it film. It goes to to effort to say that, um, 
some of the dialogue is Oh yeah, the dialogue is transcripted from, yeah, yeah. And, and the police interviews and all the court scenes were taken from real transcripts. And, uh, yeah. Okay. So I hope that was clear that there are three excerpts. Yeah. The, yeah. I mean, this is both harrowing and brilliant. God, it, one of the gifts of getting to speak to today was that I got a chance to Watch look at this, because I missed, because we... We watch so little live on, on air anymore, mm -hmm. that, um, mm -hmm. and it's not one you're probably queuing up to watch on Netflix, no. but it's a brilliant example of public broadcasting yeah. as well, I think. Um, so, um, so, just to say, yeah, so Philippa Lothorp, what the director did stylistically, I don't know where you... Well, I was just going to talk yeah. about the cinema verite style, yeah, and yeah. I know that there were, at one, at, at one level it looks like there was just so much coverage, but I know that she did very long takes and part of that is out of working with an experienced actress so if you can just because what really stands yeah, out is the documentary uh, style yes, the and the performance and the performances yeah so th three the three actors who stars the three girls were one of them had starred in Mr Selfridge and the other ones were up they're up and coming but they're very inexperienced so Holly the main girl there Holly and Ruby who is the sister who you didn't see so Philippa decided with her GOP MacRae that they were going to shoot everything handheld and they would just, because they wanted the camera to come really close to the girls, but because the girls weren't, weren't very experienced, they didn't want the girls recoiling. They yeah. wanted to get, so they just started shooting and they just kept shooting. So I remember my assistant just saying to me, some of the takes, she was trying to, I, I like little identification of wide shot or whatever, because I use sort of a text view. And uh, she was just saying to me, it's a wide shot, becomes a close-up, becomes an extreme mm -hmm. close-up, becomes a <laughs> over the shoulder shot. And she was like, oh. So I just said, OK, don't worry. We'll just watch everything and just begin. So I, I'd watch everything and pick out anything that I thought felt truthful or real. And then every take, they, they might have done slightly different things because the camera was moving differently or it was different improvisation or if different lines were said. So Philippa has a documentary background as well and I think that really was a great marriage between both of us because mm -hmm. when I saw her material I wasn't overwhelmed, I was actually thinking she has mm -hmm. done an incredible job and she has just elicited the most incredible re uh, performances and the men by the way, that lovely actress Simon Nagra, some of the men who starred as the men they're either actors again who've maybe been cast in very minor roles are some of them were even social workers who work in Rochdale and they volunteered to star as the men because a lot of Asian actors mm. did not want to take on mm, these roles and be pigeonholed. Yeah. So some of the men in the later episodes are actual social workers who just volunteered their time to do it. So again that brought just a huge energy where we wanted to show what had happened to these girls and the police didn't believe the girls for so many years. It took eight mm. years for the case to be reheard after different investigations were closed down. So I think for me I just was like any of the documentary editors here, I just watched everything and anything that felt truthful or real, I cut together. Well, and I, I kept abreast of, say, in, um, in our first cut, the episode was actually very long. And we had a brilliant, say, 66 minute cut, but BBC won 59 minutes and they would extend to 30 seconds. And in the end, they extended to 45 seconds for us. But it still meant that we had such a lot to lose. So what we found was, although the style was very naturalistic, that once you were in the subjective point of view of the girls, a more elliptical editing revealed itself. So the first scene that we began to do that in is the last excerpt you saw there, when her dad tells her to go to her friend's house. And we had many scenes more with her and her friends before Daddy's attack. Uh, Daddy's the name of that character. 
So what we found was we could actually, by jumping back to the beginning, because the film does begin in the police cell. To the, to the police cell, yeah. yeah. We could begin a very elliptical form of editing. So I just went through and picked the most beautiful shots, or the shots that weren't even the most beautiful, but that you could glimpse, like Amber's little eye, or yes, yeah. little bits and pieces. Yeah. And once we collapsed those scenes, which maybe were 10 minutes, and we got them down to two, mm. then we went back to the top of the film, which was a very linear cut mm. in script form. It was. It began with the girls smashing a counter and running away, and then it cut to the police station, and then we interwove those two. Mm. And then that revealed for us a language for Holly that we could use a, a pattern developed. So in episode two and episode three, we used that technique only for Holly's character, mm. that she could have flashbacks yes. to the moment of attack, and she, her character, was given that privilege of, mm. of flashback or memory. Uh, the other characters weren't because she was the lead. And is that something that as revealed itself in the edit because so often they're the kind of eureka moments that that happen and come out of you know it's too long like, yeah i know, know i know and um, yet that thought hasn't happened at script stage or yeah. i mean and this is all part of the you know trust the process because the, the process exists. exactly uh, yeah process works when we did it first i mean there was a question maybe do we have to lose scenes and we just didn't want to lose yeah. we wanted to create the fact that this grooming had taken place over time mm. so philippa had the brilliant idea i think at the beginning you know holly's hair's down and when she's with the girls they yeah. have the same hairstyles yeah. so we can yeah. all assume they've now bonded and time has passed yeah. and then also yeah, it did it just revealed itself yeah. and then the thing that we protected was once daddy says come upstairs we wanted to go back into the naturalism yeah. because that was even more harrowing than when you've been sort of seduced i looped that music so that and then the composer did what, what we had done in the cutting room we had this downward scale cello and we just kept looping it so it was quite hypnotic through that little sequence of her remembering and then it lulled hopefully the audience into sort of this false sense so when daddy does say come upstairs or you you just feel yes. foreboding you feel you don't actually know until that moment what you actually is the yeah. you feel the as though i think you, you see feel there's something the chef is on his apron and yeah um and um the mise-en-scene that yeah. rape scene i mean it's always challenging ethically yeah. and you know how you cover sex scenes abuse scenes um, and that's, by the way, the only attack we showed in the whole three episodes. We never showed it again. We only showed like a wide shot of a car in a car yeah. park, but we didn't, it wasn't salacious. Or but it's very interestingly shot. It's in a small space, a real space. Yeah. Daddy is very large yeah. in it. The, the, um, the way the actress moves, she moves from, it moves from it's her torso up and yeah, then yeah. she comes and becomes his low angle uh, wide shot. Mm. Um, then you know, those choice of those horrible moments that you can be accused, accused often of, you know, being, you know, um, quite indulgent or almost yeah. pornographic yeah, at times, yeah. which, which I think this never is. But just even the, the mattress on the floor, the pink top, yeah, yeah. the... Well, that's um, what I say for me, and, and then again, to the editors in the room, I would definitely say a lot of people think editing is just about cutting, but actually mm -hmm. it's about everything. It's about storytelling and mm -hmm. understanding the mise-en-scene. We had so much footage, mm -hmm. you know, I could have cut that, or Philip and I could have cut that with all close-ups, but this is yeah. pretty close to my first assembly, wow. because when I went through it, the shots that stuck out for me was just her little face dwarfed mm. by this three-quarter mm. frame bulk of a body. Mm. And when you know, there's that shot where she sort of tries to escape him, and you just see a fragment of her before she go she's gone. And then the other shot where we just took out his dialogue to extend the silence before she mm. says yes. Mm. So, which every actor uses techniques like that to extend time or to... so. Yeah, as soon as I saw it, I, I cut it pretty much like that. 
and then Philippa, when she saw it, she pretty much kept it like that. We we tweaked a few things. Um, she did a pickup of the shoes on the floor, mm -hmm. and uh, the shoes, the jeans, the, the shoes, the jeans. That was a pickup, very powerful. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Whereas we had just the clock originally because that's all they had. So she did go back and just shoot that. We only had very limited mm -hmm. pickup. Very clock. Yeah, the clock. Yeah. And, and what about... And the use of sound, I thought, was very important as yeah. well, the, mm -hmm. the ticking of the clock. So you're absolutely in her head and understanding her experience. So when he even gives her the £10, it explains really, as the, as the show continues, how confusing it all was. And even for the policemen, it was yeah. so confusing. They thought these young girls were prostitutes, and they were not prostitutes. They were absolutely abused and taken advantage of. But the passing of money became something that the police, back in... 2006 just didn't understand. Not to mention as well, which I think it's interesting that you referred to it in the introduction, that the police also feared the political correctness, that it, it was it an did, Asian yeah. group and it was in Northern England yeah. and the rise of the British National Party. And yes, yeah. I mean, I think it's almost even, you know, we're talking about the incidences of rape now that are being reported from refugee camps in, in yeah. Berlin and just yeah, yeah. it's very, very... Um, it's very sensitive. Uh, it's very territory. sensitive, and you know what? That's why I, I'm a little sad for the our um, Pakistani origin actors, our Asian mm -hmm. actors, who started this. Because I wish that the media had actually made more of a showcase of their bravery. Because yeah. to star in it, this show, and particularly the guys who aren't even actors, was an incredible gift mm -hmm. for them to mm -hmm. give. Mm -hmm. And then we had the privilege of meeting the real girls and the real uh, Sarah Robotham and the real um, Maggie. And Nasir Hafsal, when you see the film, you'll know who all those people are. Yeah. But they were the people who continued to campaign to get the story into the light. And obviously for the writer and director and producers, that the responsibility of um, the ethics of mm -hmm. telling a, a true story and the collaboration with, um, with real people is, is, is huge. And by the way, they have huge experience of that as well, because which I do through my documentaries, and they did through um, Suhag, Simon Lewis and Philippa Lothorpe made five daughters, if anyone mm -hmm. remembers that, about the Ipswich murders. And Nicole Taylor, the writer, she wrote The C Word, which was about the lady who had cancer. So I think as a team, mm. we were a really great fit because mm. all of us felt the responsibility of truthfulness, of telling the story, of not being salacious, of yeah. trying to be as honest as we could, and to do justice to these young girls who are now young women. It's, um, it's, it's really one of the most powerful dramas I've seen. <laughs> um, but before I go on to the, um, the next clip, I wanted to... Um, ask you about I have to say the next clip I'm so sorry I don't have a comedy to put in between because the next clip <laughs> will be missing child but 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 just before that I'll come back with Stan and Ollie <laughs> again as a as a as a director improvisation is really challenging and well, I, I love it like as an editor I love it and so I I also and there were moments in this as well where these actors they really were top-notch because even though they were young and upcoming they were starring alongside say Maxine Peake mm. or Leslie Sharp and there was just such a beautiful air. I think Philippa is brilliant with actors mm. and the community she creates. And you know, you, you mentioned about the small room. Philippa deliberately only chose real little small rooms. Even the houses are small. And the cinematographer, Matt Gray, he just handheld the entire series. Did he handheld or was it on a body cam? A body cam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I say, yeah, but it was hours of, yeah, probably. Well, no, no, I, I understand. I've worked with Matt before, mm. but I think that's an because it does even give a different feel because it's not this. It's not. It's yeah, not yeah, Instrument yeah, Blues. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It still has a, 
it's between Steadicam and and it does because one of the issues again now with a lot of DOPs who refuse to yes, go handheld because of, backs, because of yeah. the backs. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but without him doing that, even in our court scenes, our court scenes felt alive and yeah. felt real. As yeah. sometimes you can shoot a court scene and it's very clinical and wide shot, and then they just kept trying to find these stolen moments, and then in the cutting before action or after cut, I always say to anyone, any lecture, I'll have to stop doing it though, thank you for filming me, because I'm saying the same thing about this. Editors should grab, you know, those, if the actor is holding a performance before action or after cut, mm. those stolen moments, mm. once they're in character, can be used in a film and it can create a rhythm and pace that reveals a private moment, which I had here with um, Holly, those moments where her stillness, and was when she was waiting for Philippa, mm. but it just gives you this feeling of being with her in that moment that no one else is privy to. And the audience. How do you, because you're left with the hard work of um, when there are these six minute takes and uh, it's this improvised style. I know Michael Winterbottom with Wonderland, mm. is, which I think is an amazing film, where he didn't bring the, it was all improvised and he didn't bring the script editor, um, oh, a set. script supervisor onto set. He made him stay back in the edit suite and his ratio was I think 80 to 1 mm -hmm. and he improvised and then the job was to transcript afterwards. Oh, afterwards. So in terms of... And so can I just say that this isn't totally improvised, uh, it just Nicole and Philippa, they were open to the script staying alive. Yeah. So, but they, but there were takes that were not improvised. That were. I suppose I, I'm asking about the discipline of and the the purely technical challenges of of cutting a sequence together where you do need script continuity oh, yeah. to some degree or action continuity or where the there's lights none. are so it's a psychological edit really more so there's okay. no yeah there's no continuity like that so people there could be some people saying oh they're totally in the wrong place but you're so in the film i think people don't it's, see it because that's psychological editing. yes and Got so what is psychological, the buzzword of what do you how do what is psychological editing i think it's when you're absolutely um like Stanislavski in the cutting room and you're just cutting through the eyes of your character so then your audience will see the story through the eyes of the character as you have. The editor is the first audience really to those that rushes. So how we interpret the film are those rushes. I think the audience will interpret it. So I think that's, I think if you stay in the psychology of the person, like say all of you were watching that, you're not going to mind that maybe the curtain wasn't on the curtain rail mm -hmm. in one of the shots and then it was on another shot or that you know the things on the floor weren't there the next mm -hmm. time because you're so immersed in the actual story and what's happening on screen you don't see that mm -hmm. I think that's what I'm, I'm calling sort of psychological editing really sort of being in the shoes of the character in the well um, that gives is a nice segue into <laughs> our next clip which is the missing yeah, I do also. have to apologise though because I do she's a very, very happy. serious earnest person <laughs> this is terrible <laughs> she only does trauma something. and, uh, and I'm going to blame my mom <laughs> <laughs> what, what I was going to say as well what I do have from my family I think is I am interested in in the in the human in the person and in the in the civil right or in the justice for the person. Mm -hmm. So say three girls, is, it takes on the institutional neglect, mm -hmm. the socio-economic mm -hmm. division that meant that they were invisible. These young girls were just invisible. Mm -hmm. And I think that's sort of what I'm interested in. So I do apologise. Mm -hmm. I'll go into a lot more comedy Don't later. Apologize. <laughs> we just need to get some of the commissioners interested in that as well. Um, so again, The Missing, this is an opening. Uh, again, yes, I, I think we've seen The Missing. missing series one. Oh my god, oh my gosh. See, nobody is watching them. Watching <laughs> <laughs> okay, so just put this in context okay, as well. Context. So, this is the story. 
<laughs> okay, back row, please. Back row, yeah. Cue um, for the musicians. Okay, so the best scene was BBC eight-part drama. Um, Tom Shankland was the director who I worked with on Ripper Street. And what was unique about this particular show, it was the first time, I think, first time to my knowledge, that the BBC commissioned one, one director to do all eight episodes. Mm. He shot over 100 days, and they incorporated the seasons into the script. So the past was shot from February until April. And then, oh, sorry, the present was shot from February into April in the winter. And then the past was shot from April until June in the summertime. And it tells the story of a family whose child has gone missing. So the, the show opens up with the father trying to find his son eight years later. Mm -hmm. And through flashback, you discover what happens to the boy. Well, what I think is amazing in this sequence is there's a few things, like three things I want to talk about in this, but the cutting is invisible. It's effortless, I think, in this sequence. I mean, it seems, again, it's a, a gift of coverage, but there is plenty of cutting mm -hmm. in it. But also I want to talk about why not to cut. Yeah, yeah. But before that, because the reason we have this clip is, um, is it's a tour de force of sound yeah. and the use of silence, <coughs> naturalistic sound and, and, and how unselfconscious everything is until the music, which is more like a discordant sound and is utterly self-conscious and becomes intolerable mm. and really, um, you know, piques the mm. tension. So maybe if we just talk about, about the, the sound. Yeah, first. so um, I had seen a, a film, I think it's called Alexander by Tarkovsky. Right, so Alexander. Alexander by the little boy. Yeah, the yeah. little boy. Yeah, yeah. So he was in the woods and this huge explosion went off in the Tarkovsky film and he goes deaf that's and there's right. a high pitched noise and that's or no he you goes do deaf. Love a deaf, don't you? I do. <laughs> I'm sorry. Silence. What you say? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and another film was um uh Panther Panchali, um an Indian film where the same thing a young girl goes missing and the father comes and he's trying to find where the girl is and after all this sort of real naturalism sound in that one they use this Indian instrument of this wail that sounded like a mother screaming so when I saw this um, Tom Shankland was the director and Jack and Harry Williams were the writers and they really wanted to do sort of a, a, an exploration of just just the determination of this father eight years on to find his child so we didn't want the moment of the child going missing to be you pinpointed. It would have been very easy as soon as the child goes missing to bring in a music cue to say, yes. kid's gone missing. Or even to bring in a music cue before yeah. he goes missing to yeah. tell the audience, oh, it's going to happen now because this is about 20 minutes into the first episode. So we, um, it, it was actually a, like a, a style craft of trying to say, okay, let's withhold music. Let's try and withhold cuts where possible to make the audience lean in and leave them in that sense of wanting more but not being satisfied with being given more which again, when he's going running for the child, we're beginning to panic ourselves. But you're stuck in, in the reality of what it's like for any of us who has lost a child in the supermarket or something. You just have this gradual rising panic of thinking, when do I start screaming? And then you just see them there, and, and he just doesn't find his child. So it, it was a, a deliberate craft idea. And that came from you? Uh, uh, no, that actually came from like the, okay. the team because okay. it, it was actually, if I, if I was honest, it's in Jack and Harry's writing. Mm. Their, their script was beautiful and in Tom's direction then, he, the first thing he said to me because we had done Ripper Street <laughs> together is I want to withhold the cuts because in Ripper Street he used to call me 12 frames because that was one of the lens <laughs> of shots and then this he said, okay, 2,000 frames just as a joke, yes, it's yeah. 25 frames <laughs> per second. Um, so I so the only thing that came for me is that high note that I put that in at the 
in the cut stage. And then I see Christopher Nolan stole from you for Dunkirk. Because <laughs> I was uh, a lot of people, I, and I stole from Tarkovsky. So oh, all I, 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 <laughs> I read an interview with the editor of Dunkirk who talked about that that the queue, well, <laughs> uh, the longest queue in history. It only stops twice, and it is this, this discordant sound. Hey, listen, I have to tell you a very funny story. I went and I did a talk for ACE. I am a comedian. Well, it was just so embarrassing because we went to. I did a talk for ACE, and I decided, okay, I'll show this clip. And uh, because of the use of sound and whatever, and out of the four of us, Gary Dolner showed a brilliant clip of The Thick of It, which was great. And then the other editor, Mark Eckersley, who showed War and Peace, me who showed this, and um, uh, who was over here? I think Mark Eckersley, oh my God. Oh, um, Tim Porter, he showed a clip from Game of Thrones. And us three had used a high note. Couldn't oh, believe it. But hilarious. I came first. <laughs> but all three of us, as we were showing each other's clips to the audience, we were all going, oh my God, the latter two were saying, but isn't it interesting how there's no such thing as an original no. idea? That we no, borrow no. and that ideas are in the yeah. ether and, 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 and sound and the use of sound. And again, as a, as a director, you're so dependent on sometimes. Um, what your editor is doing in their spare time in terms of listening to yeah, music yeah, or yeah, finding yeah, music. music. And, uh, and I think that what I do think is true, though, is and which is why Tarkovsky even, and before him, um, that Indian director, Sajid Ray, why they used those devices is because it does work. It has an emotional impact on you. And the other thing that we used was we decided when the child went missing, we wouldn't be right with Tony. We'd actually be a little bit removed watching Tony. So when he's running around, we did it in the wide shots and only went back into his his sort of close shot, although we had coverage you know, yes, to do everything, yes. we just did that. So even when he picks up yeah. the, the child's yeah. belongings, like I had the cuts of, mm -hmm. I, I had coverage of the kid's belongings, should we want it, but we just thought it was more horrible well, to that, stay away. Well, I mean, that leads me to the next question, which is about when not to cut, because I yeah. think this sequence is a great example of the power of the wide shot, yeah. as opposed to the power of the close-up. Yeah. So if you just, how do you stop your, I worked with an editor once who would go um, uh, uh, press play, I mean I remember I shot this sunrise in Texas, we had got up and I specifically shot it to get a, it was about emigration and a train, it was a really kind of uh, classic American image, but it was the sun rising, we were shooting through a gate with the dew drops, and you, I could hear a train in the distance, this was miles and miles away because it was just, it was, the horizon was forever, and the train came in right of frame, went through the sunrise, and the other side, I mean, I was wetting myself. <laughs> <laughs> myself and the UQ, but God, were amazing, you know, every, every feature, um, every feature, um, you know, the, the director would have done it. Anyhow, we were so happy with ourselves. And then I was in the cutting room, and this is my only one and only uh, bad experience with when you're sitting in the room with the wrong person, like you're married to the wrong person, you can't <laughs> get out of it. And they snore and they look. So the, um, the uh, director, uh, or the, he had assembled mm -hmm. a sequence, mm -hmm. and I went, and I saw the, through the gate, and I went, Where's, Where's the train? The train? <laughs> and he went, what train? Oh, yeah, the and I, and I had thought to pay for him to be given an extra week to view the rushes because in schedules, of course, you yes. know, start. Yeah. So I went, uh, there was a train <laughs> that came in. And, and he went, oh, I didn't. He said, where? And I said, oh. and then I kind of got, I said, just tell me what informed your choice there. Oh, and, <laughs> and he went, well, uh, I'd started there and I counted four seconds. Oh and I my God! There. What and an I went, answer. You, you what? <laughs> and I said, Yeah, the four-second rule. <laughs> and I went, What <laughs> is the four-second? I said, Do you realise <laughs> we got up at four in the morning? And I said, There, if you look at the whole rush, 
there, Russia, uh, there's the training, it silhouettes through the sun, and, and we were talking about emigration and women's experience of emigration and, and blah. Okay. Um, so talk to me about yeah, the it's, it's when not to cut. When not to cut, but I and not just because the uh, the director is out getting a coffee. For yeah, yeah, exactly. so Not to cut. Read the read the uh, the news. But you know, it's just I think for every editor, it's it's sort of like a it's a personal thing. So I watch all the material. So then I, I just react to what I'm watching. So for ex if I had seen your shot, I would have watched the entire shot. Of course. So, yeah. so I think it's just a natural feeling you have. There's an innate feeling mm. that all of us have, which is why each one of us are unique filmmakers. Even if we use the same devices or even using influences of the same score, we'll use it differently or we'll use a yeah. different part of it. So it's very hard to say because I think it's just a natural feeling. So... Um, I know, uh, you know, I know we're, we're actually probably running out of time like we do in yeah. production and I, there's still two things I want to, um, two other clips I want to talk about but just because I know it was particular on this um, drama and it's now become the Vogue, one director to do all ten episodes which I just utterly disagree with mm -hmm. personally mm -hmm. um, uh, because uh, it's a massive amount of, of, of time and the shooting is such a kind of a marathon. I know you made it work in this and Tom's mm -hmm. gone on to you know, be showrunner in America mm -hmm. on, on, on things. But it is interesting. I believe ultimately the producers, you know, it's just cheaper. Um, yeah. You know, but I, because I, I, well, I like... I don't know, you know, for this, yeah. I think that, I do think we nearly killed ourselves, but Tom's, by Tom shooting all eight, I assembled all eight from yeah. February till um, April. Yeah. And then when he, when he was continuing to shoot, we had a week hiatus where myself and Tom mm. were working. And then from April until June, another editor joined us. So mm. I, I divvied up to assemble and cut the um, past stuff. Yes. And we divvied it into episodes. And what I was going to say to you is what was invaluable actually for Tom and myself is by having just me and him in the cushion room from February until April, we could find our feet in the style yes. of the show and set the tone. But I think that's right when you've got working relationships, yeah. you know, and that yeah. you and Tom, and I think even that you had worked in Ripper Street yeah, and yeah. you were looking for a, um, a different approach. And, and it, yeah, it just went to shorthand, so yes, when the other editor yeah. joined yes. in, we had found our feet, whereas if Tom had either shot the first four and, and then another person shoots the next, it just, with the schedule, it was very difficult to and that work. Can I ask you just in terms of working on multi-episodic yeah. uh, work and working on blocks, um, schedules have become tighter, um, uh, with the exception of the crown, uh, but, <laughs> um, but how you manage your time and in approaching, in approaching that when there's less time, and I know often editors now, they don't pay them to come into the sound mix, which I mm. think is absolutely key. and. Uh, uh, and also, you're also managing a, a cutting room and li in one country and living in another. So, just a little about the management in of your time and creativity and those relationships within tighter schedules. I mean, it's hard. I mean, it yeah. is hard. So that's why I have my yeah. brilliant group there <laughs> and my husband. And um, it is hard because, say, although people think keep thinking that the Crown is a long schedule. The way, the manner with which it's shot, like I did 105 hours one week on that, mm. working seven days in a row and from 8 a.m. until you know, mm. 2.30 a.m. the following morning. So we, there's still these grueling yes, schedules, yeah. even in the ones that on paper look like they've long schedules, but you mightn't get your final rushes of your scene until two days before you're supposed to lock because on those mm. big shows, they're shooting things out of yeah. context. They're shooting 10 episodes. 
So the irony is that as we've gone digital and yeah. the work is that actually, uh, and it's made the work easier on one level, it's actually increased the workload. It's increased the workload because the, you can have more cameras as well. You could. Yes. So if you get four hours every day, if they shoot two cameras, you've got eight, eight hours, you've got 12 hours if they do three cameras, yeah. or even 10 if they don't shoot three cameras. So for me, I think I just do a lot of my fine cutting choices, I think, instinctively when I'm assembling. So yes, a lot of American yes. editors are saying we should stop saying assembly and we should say it's the first cut yes, because yes. we do so much at assembly stage and we're doing sound, we're doing a lot of music, temporary music, that these pieces of first impressions of the rushes yeah. are really great little yeah. Yeah. cuts yeah. and then they stand to you when, when your schedule is so yeah. tight. So say on, on really The Missing, um, we had to lock, we had to show episodes one and two, two weeks before Tom finished shooting and we had to lock them two weeks after he finished shooting, which for anyone who knows schedules of editing and shooting, poor Tom was shooting from like 6 a.m. until say 7 p.m. Then he was coming into the classroom to us because I went over to Belgium when this crunch was happening with Fiona Colbeck, the other editor. And um, we were basically in the classroom. He'd arrive in at seven. We'd work until one in the morning. He'd cycle home and he'd be up again to be on set for six. And we had to do that because he had to see the work that we were doing we had to collaborate mm, together mm, mm. to get them in a good yeah. position to show BBC and Stars in America and then we had to lock them so we had to lock I had to lock episode um, six and seven on the same day and I was the editor yeah, yeah. No, no, I <laughs> which know. is just crazy I know she's bad to return your calls anyhow but she's very I do remember one night in Soho one late night in Soho um, Anyhow, um, uh, if, if time is tight, do you want to just skip to the crown? Do you, uh, don't do you want, want to? Well, we could do Ripper Street. Let me just check. If everyone has to go home at 12.30. We're due to finish at 12.30. Can we go till 1? Or yeah, yeah, Are yeah. people happy to keep? Yeah. Because I, I sure. there's a couple of other... Yeah. We'll fly through the next we'll two. Fly through. Well, okay, let's just keep to what the what the actual theme that we want to speak to here yeah. in Ripper Street, which is how things change from script to screen. And what we've yeah. got here... What she's got is five pages of you the open like. five pages of the script of Ripper Street that became three minutes on on air. Yes. Yeah, so, so what happens just to talk it through? Um, is that the is that the first page? Yeah, the last yeah. phrase of Spring yeah, okay. So the reason why I picked that is a lot of people think that editing is just putting it together as per script, particularly in drama, and it's actually really not the case. You, you find the way of telling the story in the cutting room in documentary or in drama, and you have to be as fearless in both mediums. So this is the first page. So the opening of Ripper Street, uh, just a big thank you to Richard Warlow who let me show his script, because his mm -hmm. script is so beautiful. But he, if you want to click through the pages, people yeah, can see. It's very visceral, a lot of detail. I, he's I, brilliant. I was reading it as a director. I was <laughs> yeah, he's a brilliant writer. And what he did was he set the scene that the opening of Ripper Street was this tour guide who was bringing tours through to show them where Jack the Ripper worked or murdered women. And then it went to the title sequence after a body is discovered. Yeah. So it was and really about establishing the world. It was about establishing the world yeah. and he's bringing this tour group yeah. around. And then it went to the titles and from yeah. the titles, I don't know if you can read this. Oh, oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, it's good because yeah. it's five pages. Five pages. So as you Number follow three. the tour group around, a little child pickpockets a watch and we follow the child as he runs with the watch and, and then the child discovers a body and the tour group come around Retro and they see and stay with the boy as he yeah, runs stay with the boy as he runs so in it is at this sense of a kind of a travelling following this character correct it was all moving camera and then after the yes yeah, so if you click to the page three 
I think if you do the little arrows, it'll just toggle along. Yes, so then we have our titles. Yeah, so, he, so the guide says, oh, murder, murder. Then we have titles. Black shit and bugby, murder, murder. So it introduces yeah. the words. Then and we then go. after titles, we go to a police officer running into yes. this boxing ring, trying to find the inspector. And that was the first five minutes of the film. And when we cut it, it was really excellent. But we realised, and it was Greg Brenman, the, the exec producer, Richard Warlow, who really said, God, the first few minutes of this film are extras. They're not even Matthew so McFadden. classic. Yeah. Mm. And you're spending three minutes yeah. following these extras yeah. around yeah. Victorian Dublin, yeah. which was actually Clancy Barracks in, in Dublin. So they... And then here is when we meet our... This, we're now in the, on page six. Yeah, yeah. We actually meet our... For the first time, you meet Matthew McFadden. So the challenge they threw down to me was, they just said, why don't we just try and interweave this first five minutes into three minutes? and see what it happens, and we'll come back tomorrow at four and see it. <laughs> <laughs> and they all left the room, and I had a little mini nervous breakdown for five minutes, and then I said, okay, let's just do this. Okay, so <laughs> let's... Uh, I can remember when Greg Brennan said it, I do distinctly remember just thinking, how on earth are we going to do that? And when they left, I said to Tom, what do we do? And Tom just said, just, just go through, just see what you can do. And so at the top of page six, <laughs> Which is, oh, it's actually five pages, yeah. which theory, in theory should be five minutes in. Yeah. We have, they found a tazza yeah. up in Princelet. She's been ripped, yeah. Mr. Reed. So, so do you want to show the clip? Sequence, yeah. <laughs> Answer to the question in terms of at what point in the process did that idea happen? Yeah, exactly. So and the only thing that was in Richard's writing and in the vision of Ripper Street, it was one of the first Victorian dramas that they wanted to cut like Hill Street Blues. So they already, we'd already set yeah, the task yeah, to yeah. be fast, yeah. but then that's how we got the name of 12 frames for the guy's spit, because <laughs> there's some images that you see, but they're so short, but you do see them, I think. But it's a great example also of, you know, how we overwrite over-direct, overshoot the opening scene, yeah. and it tends to get binned, or you, um, uh, and but also how important coverage is, so that the editor still has yeah. uh, has the material to yes, to, to reimagine. Um, how do you give yourself the space to have creative thinking? I'm so much of editing is problem solving, and there yeah, are happy yeah. accidents. And what yeah. view is the difference between a happy accident and and problem solving? But just that you know, we've all felt that pressure and the stress of oh my god, I'll never work again. It's a disaster. Well, it's no, a that's where I, I do say, for me, that's why actually I love working from home for yeah. during the assembly because I have no commute, yeah. and I get so much done. And my assemblies then are really strong. Like I feel confident in, in my assembly. Yeah. So if the director actually asked a question, I'll remember. Okay, yeah, we do have another option on that. Or I, I know the material. So do and you I have like when you get up in the morning, you pro in the same way that when we're scheduling to shoot. You, uh, you know, even though you don't want it, but you put your most difficult scene first because you know it's going to take more time. Do you yeah. have, a, have an approach of, I'll do my really difficult, uh, do you work better at seven in the morning than seven in the evening? Um, no, yeah, I, I, would, I would tackle, I suppose as the rushes come in, so at an earliest assembly stage, if there's a big scene with three cameras, I'll tackle that first, mm. but I won't actually cut it. What I'll do is I'll just watch everything and select all my favorite bits or the bits that I think tell the story or are truthful, whatever, are beautiful images like, mm in the missing when he lifts the boy up onto his shoulders that's yes, a beam yeah, camera yeah, yeah. shot that was just not from the red dot moment yeah, yeah exactly yeah. yeah and i put it all into the sequence 
and then I won't cut that scene yet. I'll go to the next scene oh, and I'll go through that and I'll do that. So by lunchtime, yeah, I can take a break. Yeah. And then I come back and I watch what I've done. And what I've done is just, uh, they're called Una Selects. Yeah. And only <laughs> once have I accidentally sent it to the director, which was really funny because he gave me notes. I was thinking, this is because it's repetitious. <laughs> yes, it could be repetitious yes, of, of, of things. Yes, yeah. And then. Um, um, but I have to tell you, though, it was Tom who gave me the note, and his note was really funny because it was for the missing, and I had deliberately decided to withhold revealing someone, so I picked all the things I thought were great, and he picked up on that, and he, he wrote to me, he said, I think you've sent me the wrong thing, but I like the way you're withholding revealing the character, because yes, I had multiple options, and none of them included his face. Yeah, yeah. And so then I watched that, and once I watched that, but then I start cutting it. And then I so interesting, it. you're letting it settle and yeah. like ferment away in your in your head. Yeah, and exactly. And and then at the very end, when I've finished everything, n not of the day, but when I've done the first cut, say first assembly for the director yeah. to see, before the director comes in, I might go back through any particular scenes, and I'll just watch my unislecs of that scene. To just check is there something else in there that I should have used and do you find um, your best ideas or ideas can come with space so that when you're by yourself in the room or with pressure when everybody's breathing down your neck or there's I would say the best ideas yeah probably with, with just quietness of just yeah. you and the material just watching the material and then a good memory so when you are under pressure and the execs are giving a myriad of notes that you can maybe find a solution that would satisfy everyone because everyone can have a, a different solution to a problem but they're all pinpointing maybe the same problem but they all have different solutions and then I think the role of the editor and the director is to navigate and maybe come up with a solution that satisfies everyone especially the director because sometimes the poor director is the one who's most under pressure if notes are coming in to change things and they just feel it's not their vision. So we're coming to our last clip and then I promise people get a chance <laughs> from, from the floor but um, I do love the irony of as a, an Irish woman in Britain that most of your choices um, either made by you or by producers coming to you are telling tales of the plight of the working classes in, in Britain and uh, and then uh, in the last 18 months um, the uh, story of um, of the plight of the most powerful woman in Britain and that you've gone from white girl or Holly to to Queen Elizabeth and I know uh, working in a very particular milieu there with mm -hmm. with the crown um, so um, you're obviously drawn to um, to stories that are about you know personal stories and yeah. and feel a responsibility to you know what is it like working on something where the person is still alive so you really do have yeah. a, have a responsibility well that's interesting because with um, the, the the crown a lot of people have sort of taken joy in seeing my name as Gwelga at the beginning of the crown. And mostly I'm sure you and your mother and father. <laughs> I mean I love I know there's been war over that father in the uh, in the uh, credits. Yeah so well Peter Morgan's scripts were beautiful and I'd worked with Auntie Harry's and Left Bank on Wallander before so I knew they were actually a great team of people trying to tell the best stories. So when I was approached about the crown and I read the scripts, I just really wanted to be involved in that. And uh, I think um Andy, Suzanne Mackey, the producer with him, and Peter Morgan, and then my two directors were Julian Gerald and um, Ben Karen, and then this year, Philippa Lothrop. While I was doing Three Girls, I kept saying to Philippa, you have to do The Crown, because The Crown kept asking her. Mm. And I, as we were slaving under these three-week schedules, I kept saying to her, you get seven-week fine cut on The mm. Crown. So mm. then she did The Crown this year with me. And um, 
But what I love about Peter's writing is he does try and tell the story of the person behind the crown and the fact that only for the abdication of King, Ed or King Edward, or Edward, King George, I think it was called, Edward for Mrs. Simpson, this crown would never have fallen onto the head of mm. Elizabeth. And it wasn't something that her father wanted, nor was it something mm. she wanted. So as soon as I read his scripts, I just thought, it's really interesting because we all think we know everything about the royal family and the fact that he could mine more stories to tell and to shine a light yeah, it's on. It's very human. It's very human and his humanity is what drew yeah. me to Peter Morgan's writing. Um, and so just can you put the final just clips? Put this clip. I so this clip is just actually for fun more than anything yeah. else. I have a couple of clips but one of the things that we have to do in drama more and more is when you're shooting, when the director's shooting and the the exec producers want to see the first cut. They want to see the first cut with sound design, with music, and even with temporary VFX. So this little clip I was going to show you is a, a clip that we have where we did, the, so on the crown, we have a team of assistant editors who help with the VFX because the turnover is so fast and furious mm -hmm. and there's so many things. So this clip is my cutting copy, so it's not the final film, of um, this phone call. And what I did was I just removed the VFX in places so you'll see what I actually see so when I get the material it's with green screen and then we have to paint it in and flesh it out before we show it to the director at the end of the week so this is just to show you sure, the other challenge it. of editing which is not just so storytelling well, yeah yeah this is my temp sound this yeah. is my temp music yeah. and uh, it's the as so you'll see the um, you'll see the green popping out and I only just took that out to show you guys what we normally face. So it's sometimes we've turned into VFX people. <laughs> and sometimes even the, the um, cigarettes are even fake. Yeah. <laughs> and especially for shooting in Wales. Yeah, okay, yeah. let's... Um, there must be somebody with something to ask in the room. Is there uh, any questions from the, from the audience? Excellent. I saw uh, Lawrence of Arabia last night as well, oh. and and I loved it. I, it should always be shown on the big screen. I I see so many differences. I'm an actor. I'm I'm not, but I I'm so I'm enchanted by editing. I think if I had another life to live, I'd be an editor, just because it's so fulfilling. Mm. But. You're, I, I see that you're under even more pressure now in today's date and having to turn things around so quickly, whereas looking at the time that you have, I, mean, I don't know how many time, years did they have in between shooting Lawrence of Arabia and then to go back and to work with the edit, but in television it's so fast, it's so quick. So have you found that you have honed your, your intuition and is, is it a constant battle to not try and maybe streamline and give the director what you think they want, but to keep your individuality in, in the process. Do, yeah, does that make sense? That does, yeah. Sometimes when the schedule is so short, then your first instincts are invaluable. And I think I, I'm going to quote something that I learned in college. I can't believe it's come back to me when you were speaking, but I think Arnheim are one of those guys that um, limitation brings great artistry mm -hmm. or, because with the necessity, basically, yes. of either lack of budget or whatever, That's you have true. to be creative. So I, I think, the one thing I would say though is, I think I'm pretty fearless. So even if I do something and I think it's right, if the director comes in and has another idea, and even if it's the 11th hour and we're due to lock tomorrow, I would hate to lock anything 
and feel that there's something unexplored. So I'd rather just try something and just see, is it right? I think the worst thing anyone can do as a filmmaker is to just become so crippled by the schedule that you're afraid to be brave and to try something different and to try something new. And then obviously say on a show like The Crown, our assistant editors are invaluable because if we're working on to high speed and we have to send them a cut, like say this, and say, could you paint out the green screen of Telethonist because you're doing something else? and they come together so there's a really great uh, on a show like that with big high demands you have at least a, a team you've got one assistant or for the series we had uh, one main assistant and then we had some trainees and they were just brilliant they were just mm -hmm. so i think that also helps you that you're you're trusting your instinct i think is key and i think my i always say my documentary training has has done that for me that i, I do trust my instinct but if people if the director wants to try something different, you just go for you. Know, you go for it and just try it, and then you can always come back. The thing that I find is crunched, which I feel really sorry more even for the director than even for myself, is when there's no time for reflection. So if you're working with someone who's a very thoughtful, processing person, then these schedules don't allow them the time to actually just go away, and then that can bring a very conservative approach because they're afraid to try anything different because mm -hmm. they think. They might mess up. They might mess up, yeah. Whereas if you could just give them a little bit more space, because everyone is different. But I yeah. think uh, for me, I, I think I, I'm, I do trust, because I've watched everything. If I if I ever came onto a show, and I wasn't able to watch everything, I think I'd feel really, hard disadvantage. I'd be a disadvantage even for the director because I would feel maybe there was a better take. And so, you know, in this one, we were always switching takes or taking the dialogue from yeah. a different take if the visual was beautiful. Like the train. Yeah, like the train. Like the train that got away. How do you manage the politics in, in the room? Because now there are more and more producers and there are more and more viewings. And um, yeah, and again, in my experience, the, the, you know, the editor needs to have your back, but also be open to because a, a good producer comes in, yes, you is. know, and actually can see the story without baggage. But there often can be tensions, yeah, and yeah. Um, and it is at that point, you know, I think the editor becomes really yeah, sort of invaluable. As well. Yeah, exactly. Because those relationships are so key. And I know you've been in that situation yeah. before, where yeah, I think I think I like people, so I think if we're all in this together. We all might have different opinions, but we actually all care about the film. No one comes in, no exec producer comes in to throw a curveball, just to throw everyone off. Everyone is trying to do something better. So normally if I'm in a situation where the director is really feeling put upon and the producer is feeling that no one's listening, I do try and negotiate and say to, the, to all parties, look, we can try it, we already have this one, we can just, but this is where time becomes a factor. Yeah. Or if you are working with someone who's more uh, methodical or thoughtful, then you're really mm. trying to empower them and feel, why is that producer saying this? And can we yeah. just look at it one more time yeah. and see and explore? And then we can park it or we can actually find a new solution. And the importance of that first viewing, which less and less people want to come into the cutting room and you play out and oh, send it. And yeah. we know, and I know, I that's mean, again, that's something I really fight for. No, come into the room. We must have. Just to explain for those who might know what that is, is sometimes the producers won't come to the cutting room for the first yeah. view and you have to send out links. So people are watching these links remotely in their own homes or. While their kids are coming in, they yeah. ask their wife in bed that night, yeah, what, yeah. what did you what think? Do you think? Yeah. 
and, and I do I keep saying as well there's a collective consciousness so when you watch it together in the room yeah. say even the director and myself we might think we've done great work and then with the producer beside us and the exec yeah. producer we're sitting looking at it thinking oh my god that was way yeah. too indulgent yeah. but if you're all watching it remotely yeah. that collective consciousness yeah. is gone yeah, no, no, I, it's, yeah. uh, so I just that first that first viewing yeah yeah, yeah. Um, any yeah here I just I know you mentioned there like the Ireland obviously being a small field of drama and like I've been lucky enough to work on some lower budget Irish drama stuff. Would you have any advice for like trying to break into the kind of bigger stuff or you know even because it's getting so small here just for Dublin? For and do you mean into the bigger stuff in Ireland? Oh yeah, in like international trying. Exactly. I haven't managed it myself. I suppose yeah, even Ireland's so small. Here. I mean, I would love if the Irish Film Board, like, make a plea, I'd love if they actually really did more, if they could, you know, an RTE. I know they've been trying with them um, some really good dramas, so if they did more. For, for me, I just, I just kept working, so I was doing documentaries, I was doing short films, and a lot of the documentaries I was doing, they were really beautiful, creative document documentaries, like Martha Neal's here, I did Fairy Wife, The Burning of Bridget Cleary with Martha. So I, I kept just trying to do really beautiful work in every sphere, whether it was short film, and then be vocal. If you, Are you editing here or assisting? Editing, yeah. You're editing. Well, I would say be very vocal. The worst thing for anyone, I think, is when, say, if you were to go to a classroom here or in England, if you don't tell people that you're actually interested in editing, because I've had assistant editors who, when they've told me that they're actually interested, I can give them maybe, in the past, recaps or teasers. And one of the people who was my assistant editor back in 2008, I asked her to join us on The Missing as assembly editor when the crunch was so big and we were locking one or two and Tom was still shooting. We needed someone who was going to cut the stuff that was being shot. And then she actually edited episode four because her work was so beautiful. We were just saying, let's move everyone up and you need a break you just need a chance you just need to keep working and show people that you can do it and be vocal, be and, vocal. And, and I think we all carry a responsibility as directors and producers mm -hmm. a responsibility <coughs> I, 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 when I say support our own my experience mm -hmm. is there is it's the one area along with them um, costume and makeup that uh, in these days of, uh, of of gender equality, that there are more female editors than male. My experience of Ireland have extraordinary female editors, and I know when I've worked in Britain, I specifically fought to have yeah. Irish editors come over and with Emer and you know yeah. it's a, it's uh, Ben yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean it's quite. Um, so I think it's important to fly that flag and for us to 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 trust. And and I just made a, a dance film. Um, and uh, any of the editors I wanted, I wanted to work with somebody new. This it all for a reason. It, it 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 fell apart because of his schedule and something else. I was trying to push myself out of my comfort zones instead of always going back to the to the same people. So we have responsibilities as well, mm -hmm. and that didn't happen. Then I tried everybody I you know did know, and in the end I ended up with uh, uh, the last not the last name of the list, but ended up with somebody that was had. It was all documentary background, worked with the same uh, director all the time, which I thought that's a bit weird, 
and and I was working in a very very tight schedule and I had really wanted a shorthand with, with, with somebody and I just thought oh this is just going to be awful That's and weird. I had one of the best experiences with an editor who was completely from a different discipline a, um, um, a, a documentary woman here and I will definitely work with her again in, 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 in something else and so we must all yeah, and those shorts ourselves. are good those dance in the box shorts yeah. are excellent and also shorts, I think they yeah, all come to and and a brilliant editor who came from Ireland just over to England recently is Adele O'Donnell mm. and she's just finished um, Doctor Who she's done work uh, makes class. work I think yeah. I think work makes work and yeah. you're there's nothing that's a waste I think it's really important to go into work wanting to bring some get something specific out of it yeah. yourself or to yeah, try yeah. something um, and um, to showcase your work because I, I have met other young editors and they're not saying they're so polite and they're not actually saying yeah. I want to do oh this and then I've had other assistant editors say in the past and they actually are dedicated first assistant editors because that's a craft in its own right of just dealing with that you know, management of media and it's turned into something different now but if you're a creative editor then just make sure you keep saying it to everyone yeah. <laughs> and, and I do think some assistant editors are very dependent on editors giving them a scene to cut and, yeah, yeah. and you know we all have a role I think to support yeah yeah um, any other questions, this lady here? Hi. Um, very, very, very good talk. Thank you. Very, very interesting. Um, have you got any preference or different approach between drama and documentaries? Preference um, to which you could do one, yeah. and then a difference of approach between drama and documentaries. Yeah, I, I don't think I do. Which even when I was watching Ripper Street, there I was thinking some of the little shots of the prostitutes and stuff—they do feel a bit like documentary, as if we're actually eavesdropping on on Victorian London. And um, I love storytelling, so if that's through the medium of documentary or through the medium of drama, I love both. And um, what can happen, which is what's happened to me, sort of, except I made my own documentary about my dad over a six-year period. Once you're into drama, you just get, keep getting loads of drama scripts. And people sort of get pigeonholed. When you're in documentary, you can't get mm. into drama. And then when you're in drama, it's documentary incredible. people stop asking you to do their documentaries. So I would definitely say I actually love both. I love a good story. And uh, that's really why I wanted to make my dad's film, to tell his story, because I just thought it should be told. So and, and my approach then is sort of the same, because sometimes in documentary, you can't watch everything, because you might have hundreds of hours of material. But you at least get a, you, you have to go through as much as you can to get a sense of a story or a sense of a character, particularly if it's an observational documentary. But um, it's a good question, because I don't think my approach is very different. I think I'm, I'm as brazen in both <laughs> mediums. And you'd like to keep doing both? Yeah, I would, do, I would like to keep doing both. Because I think there's really brilliant documentary stories that could not be told unless you actually see the real people. And sometimes when you see, like the even the three girls, which is a dramatization of a story, it was the best way to get their story told to the masses because of anonymity. But you know, having had the privilege of meeting the real girls and their families, those people are just incredible. I mean, they are hidden heroes. And if it was a different subject, they could actually be on film themselves because they, no one can recreate their faces are you know their, the truthfulness of their experience and in this particular um, period of Me Too and the Harvey Weinstein um, oh yeah. uh, mm -hmm. issues what is your um, I, yeah I mean have you um, 
lot of you experienced Harvey Weinstein's in the in the in the edit suite. But um, your own um, experience of being a woman in, in the industry, because as I say, women are particularly there. To me, there seems to be there are more great female editors, great editors who happen to be but female. There's actually a lot there of are. well, you know what? The funny thing, it just I'll come back to the Harvey Weinstein thing, but I think as well sometimes. Uh, I know Philippa said once that she was really interested in meeting me because I was a woman editor and I said now that I'm great friends with Philippa I said to Philippa that to me that was the worst thing she yeah, could have yeah. said because mm -hmm. she should have wanted me as my yeah, e as yeah. an editor mm -hmm. and a guy can do as beautiful and as mm. empathetic mm -hmm. editing as a woman can do and a woman can do as you know crude mm. boxing <laughs> scenes yeah. or yeah. action drama as any man can do so I would from my experience I would really just say a good editor tells a great story mm. and gender shouldn't be brought into it because as a woman I feel there were probably times when um, people saw Ripper Street and they assumed that a guy cut it or do you know what I mean and then I mean I totally agree with you and this should be across all of yeah. the all of the across you know in, in photography it's often well the gear is heavy or yes but yeah. have you had experiences I haven't had no because you know what with, when the hashtag me too came about I was thinking the me too it's a it's a funny just, this is just my personal view for the women who've experienced that horrific sexual intimidation or sexual assault some people on the hashtag me too they were talking about when there was unwanted attention and I was sort of thinking, just to be very clear about sort of unwanted attention versus someone who actually really yeah. You mean a one whistle compared to uh, Yeah, exactly. A, a like someone said Ben Affleck slept her bum at a party yeah. and it, he apologised to the other woman who he absolutely manhandled and then some people on Twitter were saying the lady who said that she's, he slapped her bottom at the party was sort of belittling the, serious, the severity of the other cases because that could have been done back in the whatever 90s whatever so for me I'm, I've been really very lucky because the people I've worked with in Ireland and Great Britain have just been brilliant people so say even like Andy Harris, Peter Morgan all the different men that I've worked with they've been so respectful and and just doing our job. Are there any other questions before I I just want to ask absolutely phenomenal body of work thank you so much for thank sharing you. it with us and for sharing your experiences because it's great to, to talk about the process and hear hear about all of that. I was just wondering what, you've obviously a lot to be proud of, but what are you most proud of? Was there a project that was kind of difficult that you just came up with a great solution for? Or is, is there one project you, you just have particular projects? The one I'm most proud of, if I'm honest, is the film that I made with my dad because I couldn't get any funding. So I kept shoot, I kept editing films like Wallander and tried to save 5,000 euro at a time to just keep shooting because my dad was a political prisoner in the 50s and I wanted to tell his story and if I hadn't done that uh, as a teenager I should add because um, loads of people can misconstrue his story. Yeah you weren't the teenager. When he, he was the escaped. teenager he yeah was he the teenager, was the teenager yes. in 1956 when he was jailed. I went with that 50 years to the day of his escape and met all the ordinary people who had met him and because he wasn't involved in any political organisation of the IRA at that time all the people who helped him were ordinary people. Had I not made that film some of those people have two of them have passed away another person's very ill I couldn't make it today if someone gave me money today mm -hmm. so I think I'm most proud of that because my dad's story had been sort of written out of the history books and at least I got to tell his story and anyone who saw it you know they'll understand his experience of Northern Ireland in the 1950s because my dad his theory or his his belief was that if Great Britain had actually solved the problems of housing and lack of voting and the, the poverty of Northern Ireland, which Protestants and Catholics together were actually 
friends and trying to combat, if they had done that in the 1950s, my dad believes, the Troubles may never have happened because the Troubles came after 69, after all that internment and the wrongful jailing of young teenage nationalist boys. Is it going to be a, a piece that is going to be Would very powerful now? Yeah. Like, it's amazing what you're doing, that you're, what you've done. Uh, but with Brexit coming in and everything, is this going to be history repeating itself again? Is the statement more than a yes, question? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, well done. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I mean, and, and also, I think it is wonderful that with all the nominations that IFTA recognised yeah. your work for that particular, yeah, yeah. and I'm sure um, your dad was incredibly proud. Uh, again, working in the industry, the choice to have or not have children in terms of a career and so much of the career being international is a really big choice that. Um, uh, we all have made different choices about. I think it's wonderful that you credit as part of your career your mother and your aunts. And I'd love maybe just to ask, ask Mrs. Niganila <laughs> just a question because you are part of the management of a career and a part of the and great Sandra, pride. To and the two, my mother-in-law as well. <laughs> and I do know she works incredible hours. I've been in the, the edit suite with her when she's needed to breastfeed and can't get out. And there's so, but it, it's all it, it's kind of the invisible part of the of, of the work. So, what's your experience about editing? Well, we're very proud of her, yeah. obviously. And uh, she does. She works very hard all along the line. Uh, we're very proud of all her successes, mm -hmm. but uh, our job is backup. Really, it's yeah. not. We don't have huge work. She doesn't burden us mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. uh, she manages her life extremely well for a film editor. Yeah, but I know you that the role of minding the children, which well, your husband yeah. does both, as well, yeah, both, is, is, is both huge. my um, my well, mother-in-law yeah, and mum. Pleasure in that too. I have to give you a little laugh because when I when Sandra has come with me to Sweden when I did volunteer, mum and dad came to yeah. Belgium when I was doing the missing minded the kids, because they were very tiny at that time, and uh, I can remember mum saying to me re about two years ago, she said to me, "But are the BBC are they doing anything in the south of France? I haven't been in the south." <laughs> Finally, they do say as women, it is impossible to have it all. The classy. Are you the woman who has it all? Family and career. And uh, um, on that, I'd like to thank Una so much for being so generous with um, with all of uh, and uh, supplying us with the clips and with the stories from behind. Thank you all for uh, being here this morning. And I'm sure Una will sign autographs and give more <laughs> stuff off camera. I think um, yeah. after this. And, yeah, Thanks to one of us because you can see the work that they've done for, with their visual effects. They're yeah. brilliant and they were great to send me that clip. Great. And, and thank you also to, to Women in Pullman TV for organising um, this morning. It's a great opportunity to, yeah. to um, get to hear Chat. the story behind the story. Okay. If you would like to support Women in Film and TV Ireland or follow the work we do, join us at wft.ie.